When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Show's weekend review. Chelsea stars went to Wembley and hit the skids when Liverpool beat them with a bunch of kids. Pochettino's side somehow failed to come out on top, and Klopp's farewell loving tour had a famous Wembley Stadium stop. Elsewhere, the Ratcliffe era at United is underway, with Fulham showing up to ruin the day. Leverkusen keep making German history while Bayern Munich finally solved their losing streak mystery and in MLS there were big wins for Portland and DC but we all know Bank of America Stadium was the place to be. My name's Ryan Bailey joining me today your friend and my Mr. Joseph Lowry. Hello Joe. I am honoured to be in the presence of a rock star and Graham has not been introduced yet but I believe Graham is honoured as well Ryan, you had maybe the most interesting weekend that, well, okay, Taylor exists. Never mind. It wasn't that interesting compared to Taylor, but Taylor's <laughs> not here. Ryan, and you did something really cool, and I can't wait to hear about it. Thanks very much. Do you mean that I had a chat with Graham via text? That was pretty cool. Hello, Graham Rudman. <laughs> Hello, Ryan, or should I say Billy Joe Armstrong from Wish.com, as you're now known. <laughs> Yes, uh, for, for anyone who didn't see this, uh, I played guitar at uh, Bank of America Stadium this weekend at halftime. Uh, there's like a fan thing they're going to start doing this year where a fan uh, leads a chant with a guitar because no other MLS club does that, right? No, not, not, one <laughs> no in, not at all. No, not none, in, none in Nashville or anything like that. Yeah, no, good. yeah exactly. <laughs> so um, that's the whole thing. I played guitar in front of 62,000 people. I thought I'd be much more nervous than I was and it was fine. Yeah, it, yeah. W- it was very cool. Like genuinely very, very cool. very cool. Yeah, and I think Graham and I, I, Ryan's trying to downplay it because he's a humble guy um, who likes Lululemon and that's just the man that he is. Like, (laughs) Ryan's not going to go all out here, but I have several follow-up questions. Ryan, you Mm -hmm. said you weren't as nervous as you thought you were going to be. Were you nervous at all or or did it just feel like you were playing the normal gig? I think um, I did a sound check earlier, which allayed any of my fears. Because, like, basically when you play on a stadium PA, this is nerdy stuff, but, like, there's a delay. So it's like a half half second to a second delay. So you need in-ear monitors to make sure you can follow the beat. Uh, and when one of those falls out of your ear immediately after you start playing, it gets tricky. That's what happened. But I still managed to stay in lock somehow. I don't know. But yeah, to answer your question, Joe, I, I like playing bars and stuff. And sometimes yeah. I get nervous about that. But here I was like, I mean, it's it's like five bar chords. It's fine. <laughs> Do 60,000 people not turn up to your bar gigs? No. Not usually. It's usually around the 55 mark, to be honest. 55,000, right, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. No, honestly, I I imagine that was some buzz. Like, I don't play guitar, so I would just be buzzing to play any kind of musical instrument, but to play it to that many people in a stadium setting, I imagine it was a buzz. I'm not going to lie, Graham. It was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, yeah, maybe my kids... No, they still think I'm an idiot, actually. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Did you get any kind of... Because your kids were at the game, right? With uh, Your whole family's at the game. Did you get any kind of respect from your children, or were they just like, yeah, okay, Dad? Uh, the best respect I got was, I think they watched it. <laughs> I love that. 
Yeah, vaguely interested. <laughs> no, but, but why don't we tell you what? We'll talk about this more on the Patreon feed. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. Uh, my att- attempt to indoctrinate my children into the world of soccer will be discussed as well because this was uh, one of the first attempts to do so. Uh, so, Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show for all our bonus content, including bonus podcasts, videos, and access to the Discord where all the cool kids are hanging out. Uh, no Taylor Rockwell today on the weekend review, just the power trio of. Uh, Graham, Joe, and Ryan. Should we get to it, guys? Oh, before we get to it, by the way, Graham, big news uh, from the weekend from Real Madrid. I don't know if you saw about this. Apparently, the club have requested uh, to La Liga to change the date of their final league game uh, because of T-Swift. T-Swift is performing at the Bernabeu ah. at the either May or start of June. Uh, they've asked to move to prep for the stadium for what may be a second booking at the Bernabeu. Uh, and it got me looking at, did you know how many soccer stadiums she's playing this summer? I've got, yeah, a, I've got a list. A good number of them because I know Leon have an issue as well mm. with if they end up in the relegation playoff um, match in Ligue 1. I think uh, Swifty is, is also causing a logistical issue in France. But go through the list, please. Yeah, so I've got Benfica a couple of nights. Leon, as you mentioned. Uh, Murrayfield in Scotland's first city, Edinburgh as well. Uh, three nights at Anfield. Eight nights at Wembley Stadium. Eight of them. Uh, Ajax, San Siro, Schalke, Wolfsburg, Hertha Berlin, the Olympic Stadium in, uh, in Berlin. She's, she's playing to a lot of people there. That's, in, that's impressive. Yeah. Mm. Is she going to have a European soccer boyfriend to help sell some tickets? Is that not the, is that not the, the conspiracy theory? The, Ooh, whole, uh, the whole thing, isn't it? Joe, is yeah. there a Travis Kelsey equivalent in, in that's European what I was, soccer? That's what I was just trying to think of. I think from a facial hair perspective, oh, tough, Graham. Uh, I, I was thinking Sergio Ramos. I don't know what we okay. feel about the beer tie-in there. I don't think that's the right matchup for for Taylor Swift personally, but you know maybe maybe that's right. What I really want to know, Ryan, is can Taylor Swift rock in front of a crowd like you can? That's Okay, yeah, she can. That was a stupid question. She, she, she probably can, yeah. I mean, comparable <laughs> crowd like sizes, it. me and her. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. much so. Uh, comparable skill levels, of course. People are talking. Uh, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> How about Enzo? Is Enzo European? Well, he's not mm. European, actually. John McGinn. Anyway. John McGinn. Very good. Weirdly oh, imagine that, actually. The ballads that will be written about a certain part of John McGinn's body, Graham. <laughs> yeah. It'd be wonderful. <laughs> Couldn't, can't wait. Let's move away very swiftly from that to the Carabao Klopp final. Excuse me, the Carabao Cup final. Um, Liverpool with a 1-0 win over Chelsea. After extra time, Liverpool winning uh, for the 10th time in the League Cup final, the 51st trophy in their history. Uh, Graham, they beat what Gary Neville referred to as the blue billion yeah. pound bottle jobs. The blue billion pound bottle jobs, which I don't know if there's... We need a, Joe, do you get that? Do we need a US translation for that? Uh, like they fail at the end, but they spend a lot of money and they, they bottle yeah. it. They fail. Nailed yeah. it. But, Exactly. Yes. They wear blue and they choked is uh, is what that is. Yeah, that's a better way to put that. <laughs> I love yeah. I love that line because on the UK broadcast, it was Peter Drury who was doing the commentary. And you know what Peter Drury's like. There was all this yeah. poetry that he clearly spent a lot of time on. And How Gary many Neville just... were referred to, Graham? Yeah, <laughs> more than one. More than was necessary. And at the end of the match, Gary Neville just uh, kind of spits out that line of Klopp's kids versus the billion, do- uh, billion pound bottle jobs. And that's the one that stuck. I've seen that in countless articles yeah. today. Excellent stuff. Uh, yeah, as we mentioned, Lewis, uh, Liverpool, excuse me, finishing the game with a mixture of first team, academy kids, ball boys, small children from the crowd. <laughs> no, no Salah Nunes or Jota in this one. Ryan Gravenberg off after a nasty challenge from Moises Caicedo as well, which probably wasn't punished to its full extent. 
Yeah, three teenage rookies in the mix for Liverpool as well. Under the circumstances, Graham, this was an incredible win for Liverpool, but also an incredible defeat for Chelsea. Like, Chelsea fans are asking how they lost this, and uh, Jurgen Klopp saying this was the the best, one of the best moments of his career, arguably so. Yeah, it was an incredible outcome, and I think you could sense um, what Klopp's just saying there about it being one of the best outcomes of his uh, entire managerial career. You could sense that in the celebrations, where every Liverpool player and and coaching staff member had this big grin on their face, where it was almost it, it, they couldn't believe it, it that they, they'd actually managed to, to pull it off. And what we're talking about there, Klopp's kids versus the the billion pound bottle jobs, that is ultimately, whether it's fair or not, the the narrative out of the match. This Liverpool team was nowhere near the Liverpool team that we've seen uh, this season up until now. They were without... So let me get the full list of players here. No Salah, no Nunes, no Jota, no Alisson, no Matip, no Thiago Alcantara, no Curtis Jones... Um, and then Gravenberch comes off injured in, in, in the first Billy half. Billy Joel song you're listening off here, Graham. <laughs> well, you would know about that now. <laughs> um, but Liverpool just never fell out of the match. They gave themselves a, a chance and Chelsea did some good things and certainly applied some pressure and, and Kelleher had to pull off some incredible saves. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but as I say, Liverpool gave themselves a, a chance and the winning mindset clearly goes all the way through the club because it seems like these kids have it as well. It was an incredible achievement. Some of the, the young players that ended up in the team at the end of extra time, so we had Bobby Clark. Connor Bradley, by the way, is an incredible talent. Every match I've seen him play for Liverpool, he's sensational. He's like a right-sided Andy Robertson. He doesn't quite have the passing range of Trent Alexander-Arnold, but he is highly, highly influential down that right side. James McConnell, Jaden Dans, those are two players I have to admit I, I don't know if I'd heard of. Jarrell Kwanzaa, I have heard of him. He looks like a very talented um, young central defender, sort of Virgil van Dijk. Um, there's a feeling of Virgil van Dijk about him. But yeah, an incredible achievement for Liverpool. I'm not sure it reflects that well on Chelsea. No, Joe, surely not. Uh, Chelsea now lost six consecutive Wembley finals, half of those against <laughs> Liverpool. Yikes. Now, I, I was pretty confident in the draw after 90 minutes. In fact, I visited a betting emporium and uh, made my claim clear there because I think it's something like four of the last five against these sides have been drawn. Made and... your claim clear there. Did you actually give them any money or did you just did you just walk in and say I this proclaim match will be a draw. it will be a draw after 90. <laughs> I declare tie. That's what I did when I walked in. Yes. Thank you. Joe, anyway, uh, Chelsea, not good. Well, I don't know, fellas. Honestly, I didn't think this was the worst Chelsea game that we've seen. Granted, low bar for the Blue Bottlers, which is a bar in and of itself. <laughs> I, I thought, generally speaking, they had solid chances. There was a lot of weird symmetry in this game. I don't know if you guys noticed this. Chelsea disallowed goal in the first half. Then Cody Gakpo header off the post for Liverpool in the first half. Second half, Liverpool have a goal disallowed. Then Gallagher hits a shot off the post. Like, there were a lot of moments where it felt like this game was maybe not quite end-to-end, but it's not like Chelsea didn't have looks. The part that I do agree with from the general narrative here is that it does seem very much like Chelsea have issues closing out games. And very much in this game... They had an issue dealing with Virgil van Dijk in the air. And if there was going to be a way that this game was won for Liverpool, it really felt like that was going to be the way that the ball was going to get over the line because van Dijk is so difficult to stop on those set-piece moments. And if one team needed sort of this differentiating factor to to edge just a little bit ahead of the other, it it did feel like it was going to be Liverpool, despite the fact that I thought Chelsea had some good looks as well. Yeah. Joe, I really struggle to assess 
Chelsea as an attacking outfit at the moment because if with this performance if you ignore the fact that they didn't score a goal I liked a lot of what their attack did and that's been the story with Chelsea for so long even going back to to last season so usually you'd think well you know there'll be a correction but at what point do you start to kind of question your own methodology with that this is this is the thing with um if we're broadening out a little bit this is the thing with xg that I struggle with if your xg shows you're not finishing chances you might need better finishers uh and that's kind of where I'm at with with Chelsea Nicholas Jackson I think there's a lot to like about Nicholas Jackson, but he is raw. I think he should probably be a developmental player behind him, a more experienced centre forward. Gallagher is excellent at possession, but he's underperforming his XG as well this season, although he was he was decent in this match. And most games you watch him, he does have opportunities. The one I'm looking at mainly is Raheem Sterling. So he still gets himself into, in himself into good positions, but the composure, the sharpness in front of goal that we used to, to see from him at Manchester City and, and maybe previously at Liverpool, it's just not there. And it hasn't been there for a, for a good while for Raheem Sterling. He had a good start to the season and maybe a good couple months, but even going back to last season, it didn't feel like that sharpness was there. And the other thing with Chelsea is the decision-making from them is so frequently poor. There were moments in this match where they just ignore a teammate in a better position. I think Enzo Fernandez has ones, one where he just has to lay it back to Conor Gallagher inside the box. He's got a much better sight of goal and he kind of um, fumbles the shot or, or, or the shot is saved, I can't quite remember. There is, I guess there is now at least some consistency in Pochettino's lineup, so he knows what his strongest midfield and attack looks like. But that talking point about Chelsea missing chances, it just refuses to shift. It's been this way as long as I can remember now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just pretty embarrassing stuff, Joe. I think what might be the most positive aspect for me for Liverpool out of this one is the way the club appears to be set up for the future. The post-cop mm. era is looking yeah. pretty bright. The five players aged 20 or under featuring in this game, the average age at the end of the game was below 22. It does, if you're a Liverpool fan, you're feeling pretty warm and fuzzy that things might be okay given the pipeline they've got and given the sheer contrast of what Chelsea were able to uh, put up here. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And Graham ran through all of the players that Liverpool were missing in this game. And the young kids stepped up. It was a lot of players that folks that are sort of just casually dipping in and out of the Premier League, and even ones like Graham, who are dialed all the way into the Premier League each and every single week, still aren't that familiar with. And the fact that there is still this talent that we've not just seen on the field in this game, but that we have seen start to trickle in. You, you talk about Bradley, you talk about Curtis Jones and Harvey Elliott. The fact that we're getting, Liverpool are getting legitimate contributors out of their younger players in the squad out of the academy is a good sign for what's to come because let's face it Liverpool have overperformed relative to their financial spend against Manchester City over the last several years the fact that they have been in and around the title conversation so frequently is a very very difficult thing to sustain when you're not owned at this point in the Premier League by an oil nation so the fact that Liverpool aren't that and are not willing to go out there and spend the kind of money that Manchester City are willing to spend. They do their transfer business in a different way, typically earlier, more under the radar, shopping in, in less high-profile places. One might say a lower-profile place if, if one were to talk with good English. Like The fact that Liverpool are out here trying to, to look in, in more stealthy opportunities to go and find players, the academy is part of that. And it is almost always going to have to be part of that for this club to continue to compete at the very, very top of the Premier League. So it, it's a good sign for what's to come, especially in a, in a moment that is incredibly transitional for the club as a whole with Jurgen Klopp heading out the door. 
did anyone catch Darwin Nunez's celebration at full time and extra time? So he's, he's sitting in the stand and as soon as that whistle goes, he is off. He's meant to be injured. He's running down the steps. He's jumping over the gate onto the pitch. It was just very Darwin Nunez. It, it encapsulated everything I love about him. Wonderful. If we're talking post-game as well, can I say the trophy collection, obviously famously at Wembley Stadium, you go up the steps and you go into the stands to collect the trophy, as the old Wembley you did and you do currently. The way they present it on the broadcast, where you have 10 minutes of them like in a staircase, a poorly lit Mm. staircase, and then you go up to the top where the trophy is, and certainly on the broadcast I was watching, it was like a tight shot of just like the trophy being underlit with like a couple of flashlights from Walmart, from what I could tell. Like, <laughs> this is a big production, guys. Why didn't you make it look better? It's embarrassing. So, so you're not a, a fan of the vibe of like your dad taking a selfie accidentally and the flashlight being on yeah. at the Telling same time. Telling a ghost story. It was a ghost story lighting. <laughs> That's what they were doing. <laughs> it is weird. They've, they've done that for like two or three seasons, Carabao or whoever the hosting company is. I'm, I'm with you, Ryan. I'm not a fan of it. Indeed. All right. Well, congratulations to Liverpool. Commiserations to Chelsea. Chelsea fans, if you get to a final Wembley and you're facing Liverpool, maybe just don't buy the ticket next time around because you know what's going to happen. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Premier League around the continent and MLS chat, of course. All that coming shortly. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. 
Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our weekend review. We go now to the Premier League, where Arsenal pulled off a 4-1 win over Newcastle United. The Gunners two points off the lead in the Premier League. Uh, Joe, we've got an Arsenal side who've had six consecutive wins now. They're looking pretty dominant. It's a nice tight race we have at the top there. Well, and it's a breath of fresh air for Arsenal after that disappointing performance in the Champions League in the middle of the week. Mm. That lost to Porto that we talked about in relative depth on that Champions League review show. That was not a good showing from Arsenal. They really struggled to create chances. That was the single biggest thing that held them back in that match. And it's been the single biggest thing that has plagued them this season. They've been elite defensively in the Premier League. They've been elite on set pieces. More on that in two seconds. But they've struggled relative to the best of the best in the Premier League to go out there and create consistent chances against a lower block in the final third. Arsenal in this match, they had the ball. Like, Newcastle were going to let them have the ball. Yes, there's this intensity under Eddie Howe that Newcastle have that doesn't make them quite as passive as as Porto were in the middle of last week. But Arsenal were going to have to be the protagonists in possession in this game, and they actually got the job done. In open play, really nice cutbacks consistently from that right side. Martinelli has a good one early on drifting over, and then you've got uh, got Prakaya Saka having some real success on the right side of the box as well. A lot of nice looks there. And then the set pieces, guys. This has been such a consistent theme for Arsenal throughout the season. The Athletic had a great piece on this topic. Uh, The quote from that one is, quote, the two corner goals Arsenal scored against Newcastle increased their tally to 13 in the Premier League this season, equaling their record for most goals scored from corners in a single Premier League campaign since Opta started collecting data about 15 years ago now. And the season's not even over yet. Like, there are months left in this campaign and Arsenal continue to be so dangerous from corner kicks. They have this one routine that we saw pop up over and over and over again. It was Kai Havertz, it was Gabriel and Kivior sort of at the back post. You had Saliba and Ben White more inside the six-yard box and you had either Martinelli and later it was Trossard at the penalty kick spot. And with that depth, you have runners shifting from the back post towards the front post. You have pretty even spacing across the goal mouth. And then a runner oftentimes crashing from the penalty kick spot towards the back post. And that variety in different angles and late arriving runners in different spots. Newcastle really struggle with that routine. Other teams have struggled with it as well. Arsenal's effort into set pieces is very much paying off with points this year. Yeah, it's such a key strength for them. Everyone knows it's a strength, but actually stopping it is an, another matter altogether. I thought this was... I don't watch every single Arsenal match, but I, I, though I can't imagine I've missed many this season in the Premier League. This was maybe the most impressive performance I've seen from them this season. I remember before Christmas, we would talk about Arsenal. I think they were maybe top of the Premier League table at Christmas time or, or near, nearabouts anyway. And the caveat to that would be we didn't think they'd been as impressive as they were last season. I'm, I don't know if we can say that now. We certainly can't say it about the way they've been playing the last like month or so because this is the third league match in a row that they've just completely blown away the opposition. 15 goals in their last three games. The first half performance in this match was so aggressive. They dominated the ball. They won it back within seconds when they lost it. And Newcastle were frankly overwhelmed. Arsenal won the ball in the attacking third 11 times in the first half, which was very, very impressive. And you can sense the panic in Newcastle when it's 2-0 after 24 minutes. And Arsenal are still all over them. All over them. They're not dropping back. Bruno Gomares was rattled. I thought it was a really difficult match for Newcastle and they were just never able to, to handle what Arsenal threw at them. And of course, we've seen Arsenal pr- produce these sort of performances recently against West Ham and Burnley. But to, get, to do it against Newcastle is altogether more impressive. I th- just to turn it over to Newcastle um, for the moment, I think the most sobering thing for Newcastle is that Eddie Howe 
made changes to try and combat what Arsenal would do to them. So Dan Byrne, he came out of the lineup, and it was Tino Livramento who played at left back, and that was to try and prevent Saka from just bursting through the, the Newcastle defence. Dan Byrne is the size of a tree. I think they anticipated problems against the speed of Bakaya Saka, so they put in someone who could maybe match that speed, and it, it didn't really do much at all because that right-sided access that Arsenal have with Odegaard drifting over there, the stuff that that, that Joe was mentioning, was very very productive. I thought Botman. He didn't look sharp, having just come back from injury. Shar was pulled at a position time and time again. It was defensively very, very chaotic from Newcastle, which hasn't been that uncommon this season, to be honest. Then you had the midfield, which just couldn't get a foothold. They couldn't handle the Arsenal press. Then there was Isak, who was completely isolated for, for the game. So yeah. Newcastle are on a slide at the moment. And while this, thing, this, this sort of thing can happen away to teams like Arsenal, it's start to see how this team is playing compared to how they played last season when they were just so solid. And even earlier in the season when they were they were able to get a 1-0 win against Arsenal. This this team is kind of a little bit unrecognisable at the moment. Yeah, definitely so. Uh, unrecognisable in goal as well, Graham, with uh, Loris Karius coming in. I think that was his first game in three seasons, if I'm correct there. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting with him because he, he his fiance is a, a lady called Diletta Liotta, who's probably the most famous Italian sportscaster. Oh uh, yeah, I forgot about this. And if you if you look at their socials, he seems to live in Italy permanently. So I imagine him like on Friday night got a call from like Newcastle saying you you got to come back. Uh, what are you doing over there? <laughs> what a life, by the way. I, yeah. I would sign up for that immediately. Getting a Premier League wage, but living in Italy sounds sounds yeah. great to me. And then conceding four goals on your first game back in like three years. Yeah, cool, great. He'll go back to his Italian villa though, and and you know there'll be a nice glass of red wine waiting for him. Still sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, you're right. It sounds amazing actually. Uh, so Joe, just to conclude with Arsenal, we yeah. feel like the Porto game was a you know an anomaly in this uh, in this 2024 they're having so far, which has been pretty spectacular. Well, I don't think it's an anomaly because we've seen them have similar issues several times. The question is, maybe the better question is, how much does it matter? And I honestly don't know that I have an answer to that question, which maybe means it's it's not the right one. But this team, we've seen have this issue several, several times throughout this season, both last calendar year and now this one as well. What I will say is when there's a slightly more expansive opponent, yes, Newcastle still sat back at times, but they didn't sit back at Porto levels. Arsenal should feel good about creating those kinds of chances. When it's a really committed low block team, there are still question marks surrounding Mikel Arteta's approach and the players' execution going forward. And that could be one of the things, fellas, that defines this Premier League title race. Wonderful stuff. I'll tell you what's not going to define this race, Joe. That's Manchester United. Uh, nah, a 2-1 home loss We to can Fulham. say that because Taylor's uh, not here. Ha ha. I would have said it anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, 2-1 win for Fulham at Old Trafford. Uh, Mr. Ratcliffe giving some comments to the media earlier last week. Um, and this is what he got to show for it uh, this weekend. Fulham's run of 11 away games without a win ended with this one. Alex Awobi with the injury time winner on the break. Graham, an interesting game for Harry Maguire, who got a goal, but then did some stuff which wasn't so hot. <laughs> That's the Harry Maguire bingo card right there. Yeah. That's... <laughs> yeah. That's that's a bingo. Uh, hey guys, my United are back. Um, yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. <laughs> a, a shock result, and against the grain of the wins Manchester United had strung together over the the last month. But we spoke about the win over Luton last week, and I, I certainly did. 
and how the same old problems were evident even in 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 that in that victory and that result. So in terms of the performance, this this wasn't a surprise. This is the sort of thing Manchester United have served up in countless matches this season. In most matches this season, this is how they play. Fulham were the stronger team here. It comes back to the thing I've mentioned with Manchester United time and time again this season. They just don't have any control in so many matches. And Fulham had so much space to exploit right through the middle of the pitch. They found it so easy to play through Manchester United. Alex Awobi scores the the winner, as you mentioned, Ryan, but he caused them problems throughout. I've seen some compilation videos bouncing around social media of just how poor Manchester United were in defensive transition. Um, time and time again, Fulham made it to the edge of the box without facing any sort of resistance. Lukic, Reid and Andreas Pereira, of course a former Manchester United player, so that's uh, quite painful for Manchester United. They were right on top of Casemiro and Varane. They identified them as the weak point in possession. And the only surprising thing was that Fulham needed a late goal to win it. If Manchester United had snatched a point here in this game with that, that kind of late Harry Maguire equaliser... I don't think they would have deserved it. Um, so, yeah, this this was a surprise in one sense. It's always a surprise when you see the scoreline from Old Trafford. I think it's maybe a generational thing and it's 2-1 to Fulham. Mm. But in terms of the performance, this was par for the course. Yeah, well, at least, Graham, you know, they'll have an easy game. Oh, wait, next weekend is Man City. Cool. Oh. Great. Yeah. Mm. Plenty Not of great. time to recover for that. Great, indeed. Uh, Man City, meanwhile, with a 1-0 win at Bournemouth. Uh, Graham, I kept looking at the clock thinking, why isn't it 4-0 to Man City yet? Uh, because <laughs> usually they annihilate Bournemouth if you look at the head-to-head. Um, obviously, City got the three points out of this one, but maybe not quite as uh, impressive as we may have hoped from a City perspective. Yeah, City have been a bit weird their last few matches. Um, I don't know if anyone caught the midweek game last week against Brentford. I think it happened at the same time as some Champions League matches, but um, I caught the highlights and it was very similar to this performance. They weren't very convincing. I don't know whether we've we've just set the bar too high for this team, but they weren't that, that good in this game. And while they got the win here... Bournemouth caused them problems. So City were strong in the first half. Very impressive by your favourite Ryan John John Stones, who I'm getting the early nomination in as a player who will be a good manager. There was a clip of him going over to talk to Pep Guardiola in the Leipzig game last week, and they are very clearly talking like in-depth tactics during the match. And he's in this match, he's playing in a kind of hybrid central midfield centre-back position, which I think takes a lot of intelligence to do. And that allowed City to maintain control of the ball in, in, in the match. He's just so good in that role. And I don't think many players can play that role in the way that he does. But credit to Bournemouth, because they really responded in the second half. Ryan Christie dropped um, deeper. Scottish international, who's kind of flying under the radar a little bit. He's having an excellent season. He was then able to dictate more of the play from there. Bournemouth were able to get Tavernier and Semenyo forward quickly and City did come under some pressure. I'm not sure Bournemouth ever created the golden opportunity they needed despite Jonathan Pearce's best effort to imply that they had missed a million like guilt-edged chances to score. <laughs> Joe would have been fuming at some of the commentary. But um, yeah, City by the end I think were grateful to get out of there with three points because the momentum had changed um, towards Bournemouth in that second half. All right, meanwhile at Selhurst Park, a 3-0 win for Crystal Palace over Burnley. Oliver Glasner's first game in charge is starting well. And Graham, a first Palace goal for Mr Chris Richards. Indeed, Chris Richards has had a bit of a roller coaster season where there have been some periods where he's looked really good in a slightly different um, central midfield role. I think his long-term future will be at centre-back, which is, of course, his natural position. And yeah, first goal here for him and a great start for Oliver Glasner, Glasner, who I'm really interested to see in the Premier League. He's got a good reputation 
And it's interesting because Palace have wanted a modern, forward-thinking manager for a while. They tried Frank de Boer. That didn't go so well. They tried Patrick Vieira. Went a little bit better, but nothing has ever really taken root. And they just end up giving Roy Hodgson the job again. But it really feels like this time, fans have had enough of that. They want something a little bit more modern, a little bit more expansive. So Glasner is an exciting appointment. And there were signs of what Palace will be against Burnley um, under Glasner. It's a back three, advanced wing backs, two central midfielders behind three attackers. You've got jo- uh, Joachim Anderson sending long diagonal balls into Munoz. You've got a lot of players getting into those attacking areas. You've got pressing. You've got energy, intensity. It is very different to uh, to Roy Hodgson, Ball. I'll say that. Indeed it is. Uh, Aston Villa staying in the top four with a 4-2 win over Forest with a Douglas Luiz brace therein. What do we make of that one, Graham? So I think we saw the two sides of Aston Villa here. We saw the good Villa and the bad Villa. There was so much that Aston Villa did well in this match. They got off to a flyer. They were 3-0 up within 39 minutes. And they were overwhelming Forrest with their their direct running. And Leon Bailey in particular was terrific in his game. His work for the first goal was sensational. He somehow manages to put the ball through the the legs of the Forrest defender. I can't quite remember who exactly it is. But the Forrest defender does that thing where... They lower their leg down to the ground to stop the ball going through their legs, like to to fend off the nutmeg. Leon Bailey still does it, somehow squeezes the ball through the legs and it's a tap-in for Ollie Watkins. So that was the good side of Aston Villa, but the bad side also made an appearance. So Villa have had an issue with defending set pieces this season, and that's how Forrest got their first goal through uh, Niakite. And then Forrest were able to get in behind the the Villa defence for the second goal, and they did it a number of times. So for the second goal, it's a very nice finish by Morgan Gibbs-White. And there was a spell after the second goal for Forrest where it was very open, and that wasn't what Villa needed at that point in the game when they're 3-2 up. Obviously, they get a uh, a fourth goal to, to settle it. So I don't want to take too much away from what was a very strong attacking performance, but some of the other stuff was just a bit on, a, on edge and some of the control that they had earlier in their season, it feels like they've, they've let some of that slip through their fingers a bit. Okay, still fancy them for the top four? How do we feel about that? Not so much now. I feel like they might get squeezed out. Look, it's been a sensational season. The fact that we're get, heading into March and they're still in that, that discussion tells you a lot how, about how successful they have been. But if I think three of those positions are already gone, I kind of think Tottenham maybe and possibly even Manchester United. I know Manchester United have just come off the back of a defeat, but it feels like that's the way it's it's trending. But a top six finish would still be incredible for Villa. Yeah. Europa League feels right for many, many reasons, shall we Certainly say. for Unai Emery. Indeed. Uh, Brighton with a 1-1 draw against Everton. Lewis Dunk with an injury time header in that one, earning a point for Brighton. Uh, did notice that Billy Gilmore got a, a red card nope, in this one. No, didn't happen. Uh, well, he did the exact same foul that Harry Maguire did in the Man United-Fulham game, and somehow he got a red and Maguire didn't. So. That's the cool. north-south divide right there, right there, encapsulated uh, Ryan Billy. Yeah. I blame the MLS replacement referees who were in charge of, of that one, frankly. That was a uh, justified. Was. Everton now drawn four of their last five games in the Premier League. They're going to need to get more wins to pull away from the uh, relegation points. Although, did I see, Graham, uh, just before we started recording, that they've had Indeed. some points uh, added back to their tally on appeal as well, right? Yeah, so they're four points better off now. The 10-point deduction has become a six-point deduction on appeal. I believe that lifts them up to 15th place. So that immediately improves the the situation for them. But, but there's a second charge coming that is currently in the appeal process. So maybe another points deduction will send them back into trouble again. Oh boy. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk Bundesliga, Liga, MLS and much more. Back shortly. 
This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show, and I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the, 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 uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic, and all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to the weekend review. Due to some internet gremlins in the Arizona area, Joe Larry has dropped off. We're hoping he joins us back on the podcast shortly. But for now, it's just the gruesome twosome. The Brits here, Graham. Mm. Do you think we can hold it up? It was the replacement refs, I think. (laughs) That's a blame. We blame them once again. Uh, But in the meantime, we're going to go to Germany, where Leverkusen they keep doing those dubs, Graham. A 2-1 win over Mainz uh, this weekend. According to Squawker, Chabi Lonzo's buyer have set the record for the longest unbeaten run across all competitions in German soccer history. 33 games, zero defeats. Good stuff. Yeah, not bad. I have to admit, I didn't watch this one live because I was watching the, the other big match on Friday night, Party Thistle versus Dunfermline Athletic uh-huh. in the uh-huh. Scottish Championship. I, I presume you were watching that one as well, Ryan? Well, it was yeah. on at all the at the bar I was in, yeah. Of course, I, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right, you couldn't avoid it. Yeah, Exactly, yeah. it's hard to. Um, so I didn't, I didn't see much of this match beyond the highlights, but I did catch Granite Xhaka's fake-out injury celebration and included yeah. it in, the, in today's newsletter because I enjoyed it so much. I'm not sure if it was meant to be funny or what, but it was... Certainly something. I very much enjoyed Javi Alonso's uh, reaction, which wasn't... It didn't say to me he was too amused with with the fake-out. I have a theory here, Graham. I think he was trying to do... You know, there was a a trend a while ago, you do the fake-out and then you do, like, the twerky butt thing straight afterwards. I think he... (laughs) I think he wanted to do that, but he got crowded and hounded so much in the celebration that he couldn't do the twerky butt thing. That's my theory. I, actually, it, I, I think it got I, ruined. I actually have no idea what you're talking about. A fake-out injury into a twerky butt thing? I'm going to yeah. have to Google this. That was the whole thing, right? You'd, you'd limp away injured, and then you suddenly go, ah, ah, and start wiggling your tush. That was the way it used to... John McGinn needs to get on this celebration <laughs> yeah. immediately. Indeed. All right. Talking about celebrations, there was some in Munich for Bayern Munich's 2-1 win over Ebi Leipzig. Harry Kane on the double in this one, uh, closing the Mm. gap at the top for Bayern to eight points to Leverkusen. Yeah, the result of this match was obviously a bam for Bayern Munich, who have had some pretty stinking results recently. A bam? I'm not sure the performance. Yeah, bam. Like if you've got a, you know, like a a burn, a burn, B-A-L-M. You know, a bam? Oh, a bomb. 
Thank you, Graham. Is that my Scottish accent <laughs> making that difficult to work that way? I thought you were saying like a, a, a bam, which means like a, a loaf of bread or a baby or something. Ah, Scottish. right. A bam margera. Yeah, from, from Jackass. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure the performance was all that great from Bayern Munich. The first half in particular was weird, where neither team was really able to impose themselves. And, and you could sense the uncertainty from both teams. Of course, RB Leipzig have had a bad 2024 so far. And neither team really took a grip of things. The the midfield, I thought, was again an issue for Bayern Munich. Goretzka and Pavlovic, they started in the middle. There's just not a natural playmaker in there. And Leipzig were able to, to get through the midfield a number of times. We've seen Bayern Munich have trouble against um, quick trans- transition teams this season, including RB Leipzig earlier in the season. Um, for the equaliser, the way Leipzig were able to play straight through the middle was a concern for Bayern, exactly what I'm just saying um, there. And there was another Benjamin Chesko chance not long before that where something similar happened, but Harry Kane was back to being the, the Bayern Munich band-aid with two goals and both finishes were, were excellent. Kane did actually miss a, a few good opportunities in this game, mm-hmm. but in contrast to other matches, Bayern were finding him with sort of... He was doing that very Harry Kane thing of hidden runs behind Leipzig defenders in the box and then deep crosses from the, the kind of the fullback, wingback areas. And that gave Bayern Munich a lot of joy in this match. And he hit the post with a, a header in the first half that might have ended up in the net. But he was taking up good positions again, involved again, and the two finishes back across the goalkeeper are classic Kane. I've, I've talked recently about classic Lewandowski finishes. I feel like the two goals in this game are classic Kane finishes. All right, Graham, let's move the conversation to Spain. Why don't we? We had Barcelona with a 4-0 win over Hatefe, uh, Hatefe side featuring Mason Greenwood. So I'm kind of glad they got beat down. Yeah, me too. And this was probably the best I've seen Barcelona play in a while. And there was a bit of anger in their performance, which was good. I know Ilkay Gundogan has publicly spoken about wanting to see that inside the dressing room. And I thought it came out in this performance. Interestingly, um, Barca made good use of long balls forward in, in, in this game, which is not something you would naturally associate with, with Barcelona or Javi Hernandez, who of course is a bit of a short pass merchant, a very good short pass merchant, but it worked really well. And that's how Rafinha scores the, the first goal. They used it a number of times to get Yao Felix into good positions as, as, as well. I also thought Frankie de Jong was tremendous with his ability to drive the ball forward, open up space for Rafinha and uh, Felix making up, um, making runs in behind. Another goal for Lewandowski as well. He is on. He's in good form at the moment. All of a sudden, so that yeah, this was pretty much all positive for for Barcelona for once at least. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, meanwhile, at the future Eras Tour location of the Bernabeu, Real Madrid with a one 0 win over Sevilla. Sergio Ramos back in town, Graham. Yeah, yeah, that was the main headline. Here was that Sergio Ramos was was back at the Bernabeu or whatever we're calling it now, the future um, Taylor Swift Eras Tour stadium venue. And how did the Real Madrid fans thank him for over a decade of service and winning all those trophies? <laughs> By whistling him every time he touched the ball. It wasn't a particularly warm welcome. Real Madrid fans are weird with welcoming former players back to the club. I saw as a troll to Sergio Ramos, uh, Alvaro Arbaloa. I can't even remember what team he was playing for. But recently he played a game at the, at the Bernabeu and he captained Real Madrid in one game. Right, and they give him a big banner that said "Eterno Capitan," like Captain Forever, and Sergio Ramos <laughs> gets nothing, having been their captain for like twelve years. But anyway, yeah, that was the the pre-match headline. 
once the game got underway, Sevilla made this match really difficult for Real Madrid. They packed their defensive line with players. They made it tough for Real Madrid to play through them. I thought Vinicius and Brian Diaz did well to get through the, the block a number of times. And Mendy and Vasquez being as high, um, being high as the fullbacks also allowed Real Madrid to, to keep the pressure on. But they did need a few saves from Andre Lunin who is, he seems to be growing in stature with every game that I see him. A couple of years ago, he was written off as a bit of a flop for Real Madrid, but he's come in, obviously, with Courtois injured, and he's doing a very good Thibaut Courtois impression right now. In the end, though, it's an incredible strike by Luka Modric that, that gets the job done, and that's the thing about playing against Real Madrid. Even if you defend well and ride your luck and have your structure set and play a good game, good game all things that Sevilla did in this game... There's always a Real Madrid superstar who can stick one, one into the top corner from, from 25 yards out. So they weren't very happy, Sevilla, after this game. They thought maybe there was a Real Madrid player. Or the, what happens is the ball comes in from the right side. They thought there was a Real Madrid player offside in that moment. And then the ball pops out to Luka Modric and he sticks it in the yeah. top corner. So they weren't very happy with the decision making. But their performance was encouraging because it's been a, a difficult season this, this season for Sevilla so far. Uh, Modric scoring in a game with Sergio Ramos at the Bernabeu doesn't feel very 2024 to me. It doesn't feel very swift 2024 era for me, Graham. <laughs> no, it doesn't at all. And it, you could see in the celebrations, if we're to be sincere for, for a moment, you could see in the celebrations the way that Modric celebrated and the Bernabeu celebrated. There was almost like an unspoken recognition. There's not going to be many more Luka Modric moments like that. Mm. It's a, an open secret at this point that he is going to finally leave Real Madrid at the end of the season to go to somewhere like Saudi Arabia. So yeah, I think these moments are to be cherished for, for Real Madrid. There won't be many more of them. Indeed. We go to Italy now, where Inter Milan is still absolutely bossing it. A 4-0 win over Lecce this weekend. A brace from Lautaro Martinez. He's, uh, his Serie A goal tally is up to 101 in total. Very impressive. Inter on course for their 20th Scudetto. They've won 10 games in all competitions. They're the only Serie A team yet to lose on the road this season. I think well, we covered them uh, quite a few times in recent pods, Graham. They're still very good. They're playing very different soccer to the rest of Italy. And... Uh, yeah big, yeah, big dog, big dog. Interact. Yeah, they're in a league of their own. I had this, I was kind of second or even third screening this match over the weekend, so I don't have kind of in-depth tactical thoughts or anything, but every time I looked up, they seemed to be scoring a goal to the point where at the start of the second half, I was like, is this highlights that I'm watching? But no, that's just how good Inter Milan are right now. They are indeed. Uh, AC Milan, meanwhile, with a 1-1 draw against local rivals Atalanta. Rafael Leal with the goal in that one. And Juventus, their first league win in five games, a 3-2 win over Frosinone. We had uh, Weston McKennie with a brace of assists and also an injury. Hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a mixed bag for Weston McKennie. Two assists for both for Dusan Vlavic in, in this game, who I think Vlavic has now got 10 goals in his last nine games. That's one of my unpopular opinions, is that with the right service, Dusan Vlavic is like an elite level centre forward. So the right service looks like Weston McKinney. But he has now got, as you mentioned, Ryan, a, a dislocated shoulder injury. I haven't seen any reporting on how, how long that will rule him out for. I know dislocated shoulders can be quite bad and can rule out players for, for quite some time. So let's not let's hope that's not serious. As for Juventus, yeah, their long wait for a win is over. They hadn't won a match since the middle of January. They made hard work of this game. Um, they needed a, a late winner through Regani. That's where the real drama was in this game. A 94th minute winner. And the finish was like squeezed in from a tight angle. It wasn't, it wasn't a sitter. It wasn't a clear opportunity. Um, but what Juventus had going for them earlier in the season was Allegri ball and its effectiveness and how they made matches stodgy and Juventus's defensive record in the first half of the season was absolutely fantastic it was one of the best in European football that's now completely gone 
Um, it's entertaining to watch them now because it's pure chaos, but Juventus aren't going to catch Inter playing playing this way. And they do have a bit of a crossroads moment coming this summer. Do they stick with Allegri? Do they stick with Allegri ball? Do they, do they rebuild? Because they're, they're not catching Inter Milan playing this way. No. What do you think they'll do there, Graham? I, I, just, I just assumed they'd stick with him, but it does seem like the tide's turning a little bit, doesn't it? Zidane, Zidane, Zidane. That's yes. what I want. Zidane in that role. I would love that. I would personally love to see that. We'll see how that one unfolds. Uh, we go now to Joe Lowry's MLS Corner, or JLM LSC, as all the cool kids are calling it. You may have noticed, listen, Joe Lowry's dropped out of the uh, podcast at this point <laughs> due to technical difficulties. The corner's so, going to be empty. <laughs> it's an empty corner, but Graham and Ryan are going to try and do their best. It was good, Graham, to see MLS return for its full schedule this past weekend. I particularly enjoyed having staggered kickoffs throughout the weekend rather than all sort of lumped on the Saturday. So you could actually, you know, Watch the games. That was good, right? Yeah, that was good. So we had Columbus Crew against Atlanta United and LAFC versus Seattle Sounders as the, the early kickoffs on Saturday. Very convenient for me because they were on at times that I could actually watch those games <laughs> live. Not so much the LA Galaxy into Miami match, which kicked off at 2am for me, but I did catch up on that game this morning. So yeah, this feels like we spoke about this last season, how I do enjoy having the big slate of games all at once on the Saturday evening, but just selecting like three or four marquee matches and putting them in a slot of their own. That's the that's the sweet spot for me. And MLS did that on opening weekend. I know it wasn't really opening weekend because there was a game on the Wednesday, but I'm considering this opening weekend. So let's hope that they continue to do that. And we can stay in that sweet spot for, for viewers. Yeah, uh, and, and the league getting the most mileage possible out of Leo Messi in this opening week, having played two games already. A Sunday night game against LA Galaxy into Miami, ending in a 1-1 draw. Messi with the late equaliser after a controversial red card, should we say. The uh, MLS replacement refs maybe not doing yeah. themselves a massive service in that one, Graham. That was very late for you, of course. I'm not sure if you caught that one. I caught that one this morning. So I caught a, a good number of, of the games. Inter Miami in that match, I thought were relatively fortunate to, to come away. With a point, I thought the way that Greg Vanny set up the Galaxy to basically just defend their own box and then hit out on the counter. It's not its not really how Greg Vanny wants his team to play ordinarily, but against, again, I guess against Inter Miami, you have to do what gives you the best chance of a result. And they could have been, you know, 2-0 up um, by the kind of the final phase of this match. But of course, once you've got Messi and Alba linking up lately, they did for the, the equaliser. And once you're down to 10 men after a dodgy red card decision, then I guess anything can happen. I thought Columbus were impressive in their game. Of course, a 1-0 win over Atlanta. It's just good to see Columbus doing Columbus things again. Mm-hmm. Quick ball circulation, counter-pressing, coordinated attacking play, Kucho scoring important goals, also missing penalties, which was slightly surprising in that match, but the crew still like look like the crew in terms of their, their profile. I expect we'll see Atlanta warm up over the, the next few matches, certainly once they get back to Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Only one away win in MLS on opening weekend, which just tells you how difficult it is to play on the road in this league. Um, it was another home win for Portland Timbers. Some performance by Portland in this game, yeah. given you know the Phil Neville thing that they're having to deal with this <laughs> season. But uh, Eric Williamson was really good in a, in a more advanced role. Anthony scored twice, Brazilian winger. Colorado, obviously, still a, a, a work in progress, but they were really, really poor in this game. The amount of space that they afforded the Portland, Timber, the Portland Timbers, it just felt like... They were given freedom to run through them at will, and that's how we ended up with a 4-1 scoreline. And then finally, Ryan, I caught a bit of Charlotte. I was interested. Um, the real reason I watched a lot of that game was to see if I could spot you playing a guitar on a capo stand. But I thought Charlotte in this game, 
Look, NYCFC, I, I predicted that they would be a lot stronger this season than they were last year. I think the building blocks are in place um, for a better season. I think they have recruited generally well. I wasn't overly impressed with them in this game, but I give Dean Smith and Charlotte some credit for that. I thought they were tough to play against. Mm. They limited NYCFC. There just seems to be, and Ryan, you can provide your perspective on this, there just seems to be a, a maybe greater stability about that team. Maybe it won't be as en- entertaining, maybe not as chaotic as it has been the last two seasons for Charlotte, but in terms of putting points on the boards and getting positive results, I would suggest that's maybe a good thing. I hope it would be more entertaining than what's been served out the past couple of seasons, to be honest, Graham. And it was, I think, so far this weekend. But you're quite right there. I wouldn't give NYC FC an awful lot of credit for this game, particularly the first half. I thought they offered absolutely nothing, but they they got into it a little bit more in the second half. But yeah, Charlotte is a completely different uh, ball game to use a poor phrase at this point like you know Dean Smith you expect him to come in make a team hard to beat and then build from there and it seems like already after the first game week we're seeing those improvements big upgrade on on uh, Latanzio the previous coach more of that sort of possession with purpose a lot more attacking impetus from this team as well so I'm really excited from what I've seen so far as I say it's hard because we've only seen them play against this one side who I don't think offered very much but really really encouraging and uh, yes 62,000 people at the stadium yeah. in Charlotte as well which is awesome it's like it's the, the, the city is embracing the team which is good to see too so I know we like to kind of rib you about Charlotte FC but that's genuinely very impressive like 62,000 is that the that was surely the biggest attendance in MLS on, on, on opening weekend I can't, one, I can't think of one off the top of my head um, but it's very impressive to get that kind of turnout for, for any game um, so yeah and it also looked like a a pretty incredible atmosphere. I saw like them doing the Poznan before yeah. kickoff. Yeah. Um, so look, good kits, good atmosphere, good crowds. For your sake, I hope Charlotte have a good team this season. They're doing you. Got a good kit, definitely. I really like the kit, even if it is 200 bucks. Uh, but the, the Poznan thing that they do before the game now is brilliant because it makes the stadium shake. Bank of America Stadium's a big NFL stadium. And when the fans first started doing it, the stadium ops were like, oh my God, the stadium shakes. NFL fans have never done something like this before. So it's quite weird when you're in a, a bowl that big and it starts to shake, but it, it is a lot of fun. It looks amazing as well on, on the camera. So yeah, yeah very, very, very good production. Good win for Charlotte in the first week. One more MLS question for you, Graham. Would you like to know, according to research over the past five seasons, who the dirtiest team in MLS is? Oh, wow. Um, Red Bulls? Red Bull football? Kind of like Foley? I don't know. The answer is Inter Miami, according to research from Casino Reviews. Wow. Have they played five seasons? I don't know. Either way, they are the dirtiest, uh, average highest uh, rate of red cards per game in the entire league. Of the 125 games played over the last five seasons, the team averages 2.29 yellow cards per game and a red card every eight games. They also commit 12.72 fouls per game. Dirty. Naughty boys. Yikes. Wait until uh, Rodri signs for them in five (laughs) years' time. Oh, boy. I mean, Pepe's still going to be going in about five years' time as well, so he'll probably come over and uh, cause some... uh... That should be the next strategy for Inter-Miami. Post-Messi, sign the greatest team of poop houses football yeah. has has ever seen that's how you keep the season ticket um sales strong and that price high there you go that's how suarez gets his statue eventually i like the sound of that very good uh one other note uh, it was there was a lot of uh, derbies in argentina this past weekend i learned that graham from the soccer dispatch available at all good uh, inboxes uh, courtesy of graham <laughs> ruthven but uh, the, the, we had the super classico river plate and boca with a 1-1 draw at the monumental which is still the most amazing stadium name you can have. Your stadium is called Monumental. That's pretty good. Yeah. Right? 
it's like having a stadium called epic at the epic (laughs) good stuff all right head to the soccer dispatch for more info on that and much much more but graham i think we have just about uh weekend reviewed here we're down 50 percent on on staff members but here we are we've done okay yeah, we did okay. Great contribution from Joe in the second half of the of the podcast. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jill Lowry. Oh, he's back! He's actually, he's actually back just right on cue. I was doing my impression. I don't need to do my impression anymore. <laughs> Guys, did I do it? This is not as good as my audio quality should normally sound, but tell me, please, I need a yes. Am I really back? You're back, but we are literally signing off for the podcast. Let's, no! say, goodbye. <laughs> Let's say goodbye to the ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Joe, why don't you tell us, uh, no! we, we, we did MLS Corner, but there will be more MLS action on Tuesday's feed from you and David Guest, will there not? Yes, there absolutely will be. I think Taylor's going to be back for that show as well. Um, guys, I'm sorry I left you high and dry. I was so excited that maybe I was going to be back. I dug out this old microphone and none of it mattered. Listeners, apologies. We'll have lots of good MLS stuff tomorrow. No problem. Ryan. Are you impressed by my Joe Lowry impression? It's got really good recently. I was going to say, yeah, it's amazing. You, you've, uh, you've you've come on a long way, as we all have. Uh, but for now, uh, Joe Lowry, thank you very much for that, particularly that second half of the pod contribution. Great stuff from you. Yeah, some of my sharpest work ever, guys. Thanks for carrying on without me. Graham Rosman, thank you for carrying the ship as always, my good man. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And listener, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. We'll be back on the feed, as we noted, very shortly. But for now, bye.